With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up in about a half hour's time. But to start today's program, it is your Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. decades, First Nations children on reserve had to live with less child welfare funding than other kids in Canada. And that led to kids being taken away from their communities at higher rates, often for problems that could have been solved with better supports. This week, after years of court battles, the federal government made a $40 billion promise to First Nations leaders to compensate kids who were unnecessarily removed from their homes, to put more money into the child welfare system for kids on reserves, and to leave more power in the hands of Indigenous communities. And there's one person who has been basically a thorn in the side of the federal government on this issue for decades. Cindy Blackstock has made it her mission to make sure Indigenous kids don't fall through the cracks of the federal system. She's my guest today to talk about the long fight for this agreement and why she's still waiting to celebrate. Hi, Cindy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I know there's a lot of places that we could start this conversation. We could go all the way back to residential schools or the 60s scoop. But I want to ask you where this started for you personally. Well, for 15 years, I was actually a frontline child welfare worker. And I worked in the provincial system in British Columbia in North Vancouver. And then literally crossed the street to work on reserve with the Squamish Nation's Child and Family Service Program called IS Munmun. And it was an absolute privilege to work there. But what I noticed, I was just gobsmacked about how the basic services I took for granted literally across the street were not funded by the federal government. Hmm. I remember going to see a young boy, for example, who had cerebral palsy and he had grown so much and his standing frame was so old, it was held together with duct tape. And I called the health professional to do an assessment and then I called Health Canada and I said, look, this child needs a new uh, standing frame. Here's all the documentation. And they said, oh, he can't get that. Uh, he just had a wheelchair three years ago, so it'll be another two years before he's eligible for any equipment. I said, what? Are you kidding me? Hmm. Then things like uh, feeding supplements for children for dietary needs, uh, supports for families uh, were non-existent under this federal funding formula. That's when it really brought into stark relief for me. The link between the really what is apartheid public services being funded on reserve and the overrepresentation of First Nations children because families were trying to recover from residential schools, but they had far less services to do it. And the government had also done an injustice to the Canadian public because they wove a narrative that they were doing more for our First Nations than everybody else, not less. And it was within that that I just thought, this is such an injustice and someone needs to do something. The deal comes after a series of long legal fights. Ottawa is moving to settle two class action lawsuits, as well as a ruling by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. It ordered the government 
to pay $40,000 each to First Nations children who suffered under the on-reserve child welfare system. Cindy Blackstock, head of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, launched that human rights case. She says, but I was absolutely convinced I was not the person. I wasn't, didn't know enough. There's other people out there know more. Um, but at some point, you got to step into it and just, uh, you know, hope that you can make a difference. And I wonder, but before we move on, if you might elaborate a little bit more on uh, the funding model, like how it worked. You mentioned federal funding, but I think some people might think to themselves that these resources are, are, are normally provided by the province. Right. So, uh, and they're right. Uh, public services are generally funded by the province for everyone off reserve. But on reserve, it's the federal government that funds public services and has done so since Confederation. The problem is they give a lot less for public services for First Nations than other people get in the province. And that's why I saw such a big difference between when I worked off-reserve in North Vancouver for the province versus when I walked across the line and then all of a sudden was uh, dealing with the federal funding that was completely different and a lot less than what other kids got in the same area. It's a very simple, simple concept. It said meet the needs of the child first and figure out the jurisdictional dispute later. What would happen is if a child came into care, the feds would fund the actual cost of a child coming into care. But... The amount that they gave to a First Nation with a population of a 1,000 or above to keep families together was $35,000. And in fact, they had downward adjustments for that so that a lot of the First Nations were only getting, say, $17,500 per year for the whole community to recover from mental health challenges related to multigenerational trauma and keep families together. That disparity... Um, meant that there were very few resources to keep families together and families who are struggling went into deeper crisis and then the children went into care. And that's how we saw the gra- graphic overrepresentation of children in care. So you mentioned that uh, you realized, or sometimes you just have to jump in, right? And so how, how did you do that? What, what happened? What did you do? Well, I was lucky enough to be invited uh, into a national committee uh, in about 1997 uh, with people who knew a lot more than I did and were working on this long before I arrived. And what we did is we worked with the federal government. And I was so naive back then. I thought, we'll work with them. We'll show them how much they're underfunding and we'll provide economic solutions and they'll fix it. So what we found is that the government was giving a First Nation child 70 cents on the dollar for child and family services compared to other kids. And where that big 30% gap was is in services to keep kids safely at their Mm. homes. And that meant there were more kids in child welfare care than that had been at the height of residential schools. Fixing it would have been hundreds of millions of dollars. The government agreed that they were underfunding, but they just didn't fix it. And therefore, the trauma got worse for children and the price tag got bigger. We're now at that $40 billion figure because they didn't do the right thing back then. I want to talk to you a bit later about how those inequities are playing out today, all these years later. But tell me about then this complaint that you put forward in 2006. What did it say generally? It said that Canada was racially discriminating against really 165,000 children uh, by giving them less public services, not only in child welfare, 
But it also deals with something called Jordan's Principle, which is where the government discriminates against First Nations children, giving them less funding or denying them services altogether that are available to everybody else because they're First Nations. Just before his fifth birthday, Jordan Anderson died in a Winnipeg hospital hundreds of kilometers from his home and family. They decided that what should happen is that Jordan should remain in hospital while they argued over each single item. Jordan's bill is really pretty simple. Basically, the first agency that deals with the child pays for their medical bills first and foremost. Then the governments can fight over the tab. We said that was racially discriminatory, that Canada had the solutions, it knew it was doing this, and it knew it was creating harms for children, including contributing to the deaths of children. Uh, so we filed the case, and actually I thought, whoa, Canada will come to its senses once it feels we're serious. Uh, but it didn't. It fought us tooth and nail, and often on jurisdictional grounds, nothing to do with the kids. And tell me about this jurisdictional argument that they made. Why did the government make this argument? What was the argument? Well, they made the argument because the facts were against them when it came to children. Uh, they were making spurious arguments like, oh, we're just the funder of these services. It's not us actually discriminating. It's actually the folks on the ground who are delivering the services that are discriminating uh, because we give them the money and they choose how to do it. Well, that's not right, right? Like if you give someone 50, uh, 70 cents on the dollar, they're not going to be able to do as much as someone who's got a dollar across the street. So, But those are the types of arguments that they were advancing. I understand that during this time when you were when you were fighting this, the feds they actually spied on you, right? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? When the the courts were turning back all these legal challenges, um, they really deployed public officials to follow my online communications, to follow my movements. They even have notes of a meeting uh, I took in the middle of the desert of Australia. And what we were able to find out through their own records is that they were doing this to try and get the case dismissed because of and it's something I was doing. Well, they never found out. They never were able to find any kind of ill motive on my side. to find out that that the government was watching your every move so closely? Um, I was stunned, and I was also worried, because at the time, my 17-year-old nephew was living with mm. me. And so your thought naturally goes to him, right? Like, oh, my God, what are they doing to him, right? I kind of signed up for this because I kind of have been doing this stuff to hold the government accountable. But, you know, he's a teenager. He doesn't deserve this. It was really, really disturbing to see Canada do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. must have felt quite violating uh, it in, did. in a way. Yeah, yeah violating and scary. That is part one of the Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. We'll be back with the second part in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You're listening to After 9. Hello, I'm Carlos Núñez, the Galician Piper. We're the Ducks. 
Hey, this is Tim Brennan with the Dropkick Murphys. Hey, this is Dave King from Flag and Molly. Sean Smith from Lunaset. Karen Casey here. This is Ian Byrne from The Elders. Join me, Patricia Fraser, for the best Celtic music mix. Kelton a Twist, Canada's contemporary Celtic radio hour. Kelton a Twist with your host, Patricia Fraser. Tuesday nights at 8, following Fiddle Fest with AJ, here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. In Prince George, DDR2 Computer Solutions is your first stop for sales, service, and repairs. Located just off Queensway at 857 2nd Avenue, next to MetaChair, DDR2 can keep your business or home system running at peak performance. Their in-shop and on-site rates are competitive, so you receive quality service at an affordable price, plus there's a special rate for seniors. They also carry top-of-the-line laptops, motherboards, and graphics cards for high-end gaming. When you think of computers, think of DDR2. Call 236-423-2216. That's 236-423-2216. Working from home is not always easy. Unexpected visitors, pets looking for attention, phone calls, chores, the list of possible interruptions is endless. Get away from the distractions with a rental from the Q3 Creative Business Hub. Rent an office or desk by the month or a desk on a drop-in basis when working from home is getting the better of you. For more information, email q3building at gmail.com. Q3 Creative Business Hub. Open for desk and office rentals at Quebec and 3rd. Forecast from Environment Canada. Periods of snow ending late this morning, then mainly cloudy. Wind up to 15K, a high of minus 22 with a wind chill to minus 31 and a risk of frostbite. Tonight, a few flurries beginning early this evening, wind continuing, a low of minus 25, a wind chill to minus 33 with a risk of frostbite. For Saturday, cloudy with snow beginning in the afternoon, winds in the north 20 late in the afternoon, a high of minus 17, a wind chill to minus 30 and a risk of frostbite. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is the second part of your Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News. So, so I want to go through the TikTok of, of what happens next. And let's zoom to 2016. So the tribunal ruled in your favor. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal issued another ruling this week that found the federal government discriminated against Indigenous children in care. The tribunal ordered Ottawa to pay tens of thousands of dollars to each child. This compensation arises from a 2016 decision that found the government underfunded child welfare services on reserves. And by 2019, the Liberal government is still fighting in court against the tribunal's decision that they're supposed to pay these kids, saying this should be handled, you know, again, through other means, through class action lawsuits. And and why are they still fighting this, do you think? Well, you know, it's a good question. We had the order and government paraded out uh, ministers to accept the order back in 2016. Then they didn't do anything. And of course, their two appeals to federal court were dismissed. I actually think it gets to this idea of the colonial power, that they don't want to be held accountable. They really want to call the shots. Do you think it was also about uh, not wanting to set a precedent? Um, yeah, but the, no one had the leadership to step back and think the precedent we're setting is equality, which mm-hmm. is available to all other kids in the country. They'd often say, oh, this is so complex to fix. And I say, I would always say, well, you do it for every other kid in the country. Why is this so complex? I don't really understand where they were, they were going with this at all. It has no moral basis to it, no logical basis to it. What do you think it was that flipped the switch and got the government uh, starting to negotiate instead of continuing these legal battles? 
Well, one of the, the great things is the federal court decision that came the day before the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, mm. dismissing two of their, again, jurisdictional challenges, and right? The tribunal doesn't have a right to make these That was quite, quite recently, right? That's right, in 2021. And you'll remember during the campaign, they were even saying, well, we're not fighting First Nations kids in court. But they were fighting First Nations kids in court in real time while they were saying that. And I, and I meant it when I said, you can't take a knee one day if you're going to take Indigenous kids to court the next. That's not, that's not leadership. Mr. Singh, that's you not love make that line about taking it's Indigenous not, kids to court. Oh, it's what? actually not true. We have Trudeau, committed we, to compensating you that? those you can't, uh, kids you can't who went that. through that. The other thing that I think that really changed, and it's a credit to the spirits of the children and the unmarked graves and the survivors and to youth and care themselves, I think that that really, the discovery of the unmarked graves really awoke the Canadian consciousness. Mm. And Canadians began asking questions about what's going on now. Why is the government fighting First Nations kids in court, they would ask. And they would ask that of their member of parliament. I think that that type of public accountability, together with the legal stuff, really created a pressure on the government to change course and to actually try to do something. Right, right. The idea that they're operating in a different a different climate. Can you pull back the curtain behind that negotiation process? Uh, how, how did it go? What happened? I, I'm not sure if you were personally involved in it or not, but... Yeah, I was personally involved in it. And there's, uh, I can't say a lot about it. Other than um, going into that space, I was really clear that negotiations actually are one of the tools government uses to delay. And keep in mind, they were legally ordered to end the discrimination. This isn't something where they get to choose the remedy anymore. They This is something that they have to do is to fulfill these legal orders. So I was very cautious going in there. And I wanted to see if they were really serious about this. Um, I still want to see whether they're serious. We've reached an agreement in principle that provides a pathway for the government to stop its uh discriminatory conduct in these two areas and also to fix itself so it doesn't hurt another generation of kids. But these are just words on paper right now. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about what the words on paper are, what what right. what, what they actually say. Well, uh, there's two uh, agreements. One is the one on compensation. Uh, there was an order by the tribunal that the government owed $40,000 as a minimum to First Nations children and sometimes their caregivers who were hurt by Canada's discrimination. And keep in mind, these are many cases are still children. We're talking about five, eight, and 14-year-olds. We're not talking about people who have grown up now in many cases, although there are some young adults. What the agreement in principle is, is uh, to say uh, that the government of Canada has allocated $20 billion to compensate those people. What's mm -hmm. still unknown is how they're going to distribute it. Are they going to honor that $40,000? The ministers say yes, uh, but I think we need to see it actually in writing yet. Then there's the agreement about how to fix the ongoing discrimination. And what we need to see there is on April 1st, the federal government is to increase prevention funding to 2500 per person on reserve so that 
we can begin to get a foothold on recovery from that multi-generational trauma and deal with the drivers of kids in care, which are addictions, intimate partner violence, multi-generational trauma, poverty, and poor housing, and also to provide more supports for young people who are in care or aging out of care. So that all is supposed to happen as of April 1st. That'll be the first time that we actually see change that would impact kids on the ground. It is an affirmation and understanding of the things that have gone on. Jay Simpson spent 16 years in foster homes, struggling to access basic services. And there was always a fight with who would pay for dental. Simpson says the money ordered by the tribunal wouldn't erase the pain from all those years, but it's a start. Okay, and and like you mentioned, this is all this is all non-binding, right? Okay. It's all non-binding, but we will uh, be looking to get um, consent orders from the tribunal so that there is a legal imperative to Canada because we're mindful that we've heard good words from governments before, but that hasn't translated into non-discrimination for kids. Often it's been a public relations strategy to try and reduce the political pressure so they can continue operating as usual. When we started this conversation, we talked about the disparities that you were seeing 15 years ago. I wonder if you could talk to me now a little bit about what those disparities look like today, all these years later, while you've been fighting this. There's been some improvements in getting funding out there to support families, but more is needed, particularly to deal with that multi-generational trauma and addictions. Other types of gaps that we need to be seeing is in services, for example, for uh, under Jordan's principle. Right now, kids can apply to get services, but what we're finding is in the vast majority of circumstances, the services they're, quote, applying for are actually provided to other Canadian children without any application needed. They're just out there. So we need to make sure that it's not just children who apply, but it's all children who are on reserve who get the benefit of the services without any need to apply for them. Um, And then when we talk about applications, we're talking about services uh, in health, in education, things like learning assessments, learning supports, and social services things as well. One thing that you have said uh, during, during this fight that really gave you hope is the role of young people, kids in all of this. Yeah. I wonder before we go today, if there's a moment that you can recall seeing some of these kids push for change that really stood out to you, that that kept you going. Yeah. Well, when we filed the case in 2007, we had a press conference. And I can still remember the sound of my heels hitting the parliament floor because there was nobody there. Hmm. And... In 2009, when we were having the first set of hearings on this case, very few people were paying attention. But we created a campaign called I Am a Witness where we were inviting people to come. And in walks a group of high school students. And this young man says to me, we're from alternative school, which means we get into trouble a lot. And I said, oh, well, good. So do I. (laughs) Uh, And he says, yeah. And sometimes we get into trouble for doing stupid stuff. But Sometimes we get into trouble, and it's the system that really needs to be held accountable, not us. And you're trying to do, hold that system accountable, and that's why we're here. They came, and then they came to the next set of hearings wearing I Am A Witness t-shirts and brought 
uh, their parents and their grandparents. And by 2012, there were so many children coming to the hearings that we had to book them in in shifts. Uh, That has been an uplifting thing. And even the day uh, this week when this announcement was been made, I opened up the mail and there was a beautiful set of drawings and letters from children from York. And they had written in there that every child matters, but that they knew it was more than just words that they needed to put on paper, that they had to take action as children and as young people to make sure that those kids really do matter. Cindy Boxark, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And hopefully you can catch up with me on April 1st and see if the feds actually land some of this stuff. We would love to. <laughs> Thanks. That is all for this week. Frontburner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show is produced this week by Simi Bassey, Imogen Burchard, Allie Janes, Katie Toth, and Derek Vanderweyck. Our sound design was by Mackenzie Cameron and Nouradine Kourane. Our music is by Joseph Chabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Frontburner is Nick McKay-Blokos, and I'm Jamie Poisson. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you on Monday. That is your Friday morning edition of Frontburner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You can also catch Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After Nine continues, it's the Friday panel with your guest host this morning, Trudy Clausen. Canada Post has put a contingency plan in place to maintain postal services. While mail delivery continues wherever possible, you may experience some delays in receiving items. If you're sending time-sensitive items, considering using Express Post or Priority Service to help ensure timely delivery and be able to track the item at canadapost.ca. If you have any questions regarding postal services, contact a Canada Post customer service team at one 607 63 The Legion Corner on 6th is open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evenings. Friday and Saturday nights include their popular meat draws, featuring five draws each night between 4.30 and 6.30. It's your chance to win gift cards to Homesteader Meats. Pick up your tickets when you dine in or pick up your food order. But you must be on site to win. Anyone 19 or older is welcome. The Legion Corner, open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 4 to 7 at 1116 6th Avenue. Engage your board and align their work with organizational values and vision with Advantage Points Board's fundamentals, roles, and responsibilities. A highly effective and engaged board has clarity around roles and responsibilities and aligns their work and performance with organizational values and vision. Registration, cost, and full details are available through the training link at advantagepoint.ca. Board fundamentals, roles, and responsibilities, January 18th from 5.30 to 8.30 through the advantagepoint.ca. The BC Schizophrenia Society has launched its Cannabis and Mental Health video. The video centers around questions regularly asked by youth across the province about cannabis, including the impact of cannabis on the brain and how it may affect those at risk of developing a serious mental illness. Visit bcss.org to watch the Cannabis and Mental Illness video, go through the resources, and find out how you can help share this information with the youth in your life. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right. Good morning. Trudy Clausen, guest hosting today. Uh, so we've got a our Friday panel here. Art Betke, Peter Ewart, 
uh, Eric Allen and Herb Martin. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Hello there. Good morning. I truly just skimmed into the door here. So, um, so we've got a s- school district. Um, we'll start off with that with the school district. Um, trustee by-election happening, and I know that we've sort of mentioned it in the past, and we haven't been incredibly inspired (laughs) at that point, but we are getting closer, and and I really think that it's important that people do vote, because I, like, my personal opinion is that, uh, I mean, this is where we, um, you know, children are growing up in their homes, and then, you know, they get into grade five, or kindergarten, and, and grade one and and really this is their first experience with you know wider society in a sense um and and so i think that's that who we have governing that our education system is incredibly important um and so i just before i begin uh asking for feedback from from the panelists i just want to say that we are having um Next Thursday and Friday from nine to ten, I'm going to be having each of the each of the candidates on. So because there's six or five of them, we thought it was a little bit too too many people to fit into one hour. So we're breaking them up. We've got two people on Thursday and three on Friday, and we're going to begin uh, Thursday with Tim Bennett and Cheryl Warrington. So. Uh, just giving a brief explanation of how the by-election process works, but um, let's let's start with uh, Herb. Um, Herb, what are your thoughts here? Have you had a chance to take a look at the candidates, and and what do you think? Uh, had a quick look at a couple of them. Um, the ones that uh, sort of uh, popped out uh, at me were uh, Shannon Freeman, as uh, an UNBC um, associate professor of nursing, and um, according to her students online. Uh, she gives out lots of homework, and she's a tough grader. So um, I guess the uh, students were um, not all that impressed with her in terms of uh, the workload. <laughs> but uh, that's probably a good thing, and it's and I think she's got uh, some children in school, and um, uh, so she actually literally has skin in the game. So I think she might be a good candidate. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting interesting to see what uh, she has to say. And Audrey McKinnon, I think um, uh, she she. Um, uh, uh, did a fairly good job uh, running um, uh, provincially, and um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think she she'd be credit to the job as well. Okay, well, that's um, uh, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, as most of you will know, I ran for school uh, district trustee the last election, and that was that that idea of school having become. Um, too much like glorified babysitting was certainly something I heard at the door, and, and it sounds to me like um, you know you're probably right on onto something there with uh, Dr. Freeman being someone maybe that would be uh, willing to maybe inc- um, up the ante on educational outcomes. Um, Peter, how about yeah. you? My views on this? Yes. Like, who, who have you had a chance to look at the candidates and uh, sort of, or what are you looking for in them? Uh, with the, uh, I've, I've looked at the, the Prince George candidates, and uh, what I see is, uh, you know, there's quite a range of candidates. I'm happy to see that there's, there's quite a bit of choice, right? You know, when you have five candidates uh, running, so, and each of them comes from a different perspective. Like, Andrew Burton is a social worker who worked with youth, Shannon Freeman. As Herb said, is a nursing professor, uh, and um, then you have Brian Trotter, who's uh, 
worked as an electrician and has a labor background. And then um, Milton Mahoney, who worked as an investigator at CN, at CN Rail. And then Audrey McKinnon, who's a former journalist and uh, was also an NDP candidate federally. You know, so I don't know. I, I look at the, my initial look at all of these candidates. It seems to me that all of them, uh, you know, bring, you know, are, are competent, serious candidates. And uh, each brings some, uh, another perspective to the table. But I'm, I'm very interested in listening to your show uh, next week, you know, just to hear what the actual uh, views are in terms of moving things ahead at, at, the, at the school district. And I, in any case, I wish them all well, but um, I'll be interested in, the, in your radio show. That's good to hear. And thanks for naming them all. Um, and like you said, uh, we have the Prince George candidates of, uh, by name, Andrew Burton, Shannon Freeman, Milton Mahoney, Audrey McKinnon, and Brian Trotter. And then in McKenzie, there are two candidates. Uh, but, of course, if you live in Prince George and area, you're voting for the uh, Prince George candidates. Um, Art, what have you had a chance to look at them, and, and what are your thoughts? Oh, I've had a chance, but I haven't looked at them, actually. <laughs> uh, with with uh, political candidates, I pretty much know what their platforms are and where they stand on issues, so uh, I, I pay a lot of more attention to them in any election. But in school board elections, I really, it's not a political office. So uh, what I generally do is, you know, kind of wait till right close to the end and check them out and decide. Uh, I've, I've heard a bit about some of them. You know, there have been uh, uh, small newspaper articles on their platforms or what they believe in, and uh, I form somewhat of an opinion on a couple of them, but uh, I'll wait till uh, just before the election and, and then check them out. Okay. All right. How about you, Eric? How do you, like, the, um, Art has brought up something interesting, and just in the sense that they're not really political candidates, um, uh, what do you look for when you're thinking of who to vote for for a school district? Well, I mean, ideally you want, of course, we all want is qualified people that have, uh, you know, the uh, concerns of the school district as number one priority, and uh, and they're hard to come by sometimes. I mean, this is probably one of the better states that I've seen in a long time. They're all like, they're fairly... Uh, uh, well, I don't know if you use the word educated. You may as well. Fairly well educated, uh, diversified group, working people, and uh, uh, any one of them probably would do a good job on uh, on the school board. Problem is that you know this is going to be a by-election where you're not going to have everybody else that's going down to vote for the councillors, and that that'll also be there to vote. So there'll be a significant drop in. I think, in the number of people who voted. I'm not sure last time, I think, Trudy, didn't you get around 14,000 votes or something? Uh, no, I don't think even that many. I think it was around 4,000. 4,000, eh? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I guess. But I lost. I think the mayor only got 11,000. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, I, and I'm so not sure... Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, much of an election that time from a, from a turnout, it was less than, or pretty close to 50%. Yeah, it was really bad. Yeah, so now we're going to get just people going out for this particular one in a by-election, so and five people are running, so that vote's going to be split five ways. Well, it's interesting. Somebody was telling me that uh, people could probably win with just 400 votes. So. <laughs> That's exactly where I was heading there. I mean, you probably could be. 
you know, it's not going to take too many votes to get there. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, so they're pretty good-looking candidates overall. Uh, I'm going to wait and see what they have to say. So your show, you said, was going to be... Next Thursday at from 9 to 10. Yeah. And Friday, 9 to 10 again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I had to do some math to figure out how to split up two, uh, two hours into five candidates. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I did okay. <laughs> so people will be sitting and listening to that, and they'll get a better sense of what's going on. There's not that much information out there. If there is, I haven't seen it, but... Uh, uh, some of them, of course, I ran before. You have more information on, but they all seem seem pretty good. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a good race. Yes, and and you know you've you've highlighted a concern that I had running, uh, and even before I ran, um, it just seemed that there there aren't a lot of places for these people to engage. And I know a few of the candidates have mentioned that to me because I was you know as I was setting this opportunity up and. Um, like we haven't had any debates or anything. And, and I mean, the truth is that it's, it's a by-election. It's not a, you know, we're going into a full election in the fall, but, but it is important. And I, um, and I'm not sure how to fix that. I know I went on the school district website and, uh, you know, I was trying to find out, you know, all the candidates and everything. And the screen, this, the screen, like that web page that showed all the candidates was like in the lightest gray color. It was hard to read. And I thought, seriously, we need to up our game here. Um, and it was hard. I couldn't find it right away either. Um, so I think the, the school district themselves could maybe up their game there. Um, so just um maybe if uh, just to round off uh well let's do we, can we go for a break here Stephen all right we're going to go for a break and then I'll come back and I'll ask you all for a question uh if you can give me one question that I should ask the candidates and that way they you know if they're listening they'll have a heads up the artist co-op workshop and gallery have a host of winter classes set for January February and March Acrylic, watercolor, pencil, oil, or ink. Whatever the medium, the Artist Co-op has the class for you. Prices depend on the number of students, and all students must comply with COVID restrictions. New members are welcome, and gift certificates are available. The Artist Co-op Workshop and Gallery Winter Classes. For registration and more information, call 250-962-0030. A solid foundation for new and aspiring not-for-profit managers can mean the difference between moving forward or feeling stuck. Vantage Point's Essentials for New Managers covers tools and approaches to achieve success in new management roles. Take part to dissect topics like your role as a manager and supporting your team's performance. Registration and full details are available at thevantagepoint.ca. Level up your management skills over three Tuesday evening sessions. Essentials for new managers from Vantage Point, starting February 8th via Zoom. Theatre Northwest will be returning to the stage for the 2021-22 season with a play based on a women's hockey team from the 1930s. Glory by Tracy Power is the story of the Preston Rivulets, with several of the on-ice scenes set to swing music tunes from the era. It's a piece of Canadian history few are aware of. Glory is on stage at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre from February 4th to February 23rd, health orders permitting. Tickets for Glory, presented by Theatre Northwest, are now available through theaternorthwest.com. Forecast from Environment Canada, periods of snow ending late this morning, then mainly cloudy. Wind up to 15K, a high of minus 22 with a wind chill to minus 31 and a risk of frostbite. Tonight, a few flurries beginning early this evening, wind continuing, a low of minus 25, a wind chill to minus 33 with a risk of frostbite. For Saturday, cloudy with snow beginning in the afternoon, wind from the north 20 late in the afternoon, a high of minus 17, a wind chill to minus 30 and a risk of frostbite. 
This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right. Well, let's start this segment with questions. Um, if you guys have them for that, I or at least one question from each of you uh, for the school district candidates. Let's start with um, let's start with Herb. We'll go in the same direction we did last time. So, Herb, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, just a simple question for them. Uh, just ask them uh, what uh, what will you be able to do, or what will you bring to the table to make things better, and um, and just see what see what their their ideas are and see what's in their heart and see what they're willing to to do. Okay, can you just elaborate on what you think is better? Well, that's that's going to be for them to, to uh, basically um, uh, expand on because it's, it's going to be uh, indicative of what they see the problems are. All right, fair enough. Okay, Peter? Uh, well, one of the issues with um, school boards is under the current provincial system is that they have very little power. And um, so I'm interested in seeing candidates who uh, are willing to, you know, speak to that power, right, you know, like on the provincial level, provincial government or ministry of education, right, uh, not, okay. a, not reluctant to, uh, to, to speak out if necessary. I like that. Okay. Um, Art, have you got a question? Mm, sort of. I, I would wonder if the candidate is going to push the political correctness in as many facets or if they would just concentrate on providing an education for the kids and the subjects that they need. All right. Thank you, Art. And Eric? Uh, well, something along the lines of what uh, Herb was saying. I'd, I'd kind of like to see him indicate what, uh, why they got into it in the first place and what it is they think they can do that... Uh, is not already being done. I know there's lots of room there to maneuver, but uh, there's got to be a reason for it. And also, I'm kind of curious that, I mean, it's only a couple of months down the road and it's got to be done again if they're all sort of win, lose, or draw, if they're all thinking of running in the regular election. Well, that's uh, a good question. Yeah, because that would be interesting to know, too. If it was me, I would be kind of using this as a training ground for the big game. Yeah, okay. No, that's good. Okay, um, all right. So then let's uh, segue into, um, huh, well, we just passed January 6th. We actually survived. <laughs> American democracy, we think, is still, you know, stumbling along. Um, but I'd just like to get your thoughts on, you know, how are things after that, uh, uh, whether you call it a protest, riot, or attack on the Capitol in the U.S., where are we? Where are we are we any? Are we doing any better here in Canada? Um, let's start with with Art. I think I can count on you for some good thoughts here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the political pundits I uh, follow, he said uh, more than a year ago, before the election, that the U.S. is more divided now than at any point in their history, except for the Civil War. Hmm. And I think that's true. And uh, and it's getting worse. Uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, the politicians in power are stoking that division. Um, the, these kinds of things is uh, f- for the uh, for the Democrats. Uh, the riot at the Capitol that that was a gift for them. They loved it because rioting is what the left usually does. You know, um, Occupy Wall Street, BLM, Antifa. You know, they were rioting for years and massive damage and arson and injuries, even deaths, and the media and the Democrats always seem to have some excuse for them. But 
you know, this one, oh, they loved it because finally that's one where they could get after the uh, Republicans and the conservatives. And it's all blamed on Trump, even though he had nothing to do with it. So, you know, the, the attack started 20 minutes before he finished speaking. And when he was speaking, he urged them to demonstrate peacefully multiple times. So... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point because, yeah, that uh, that did come – I'm going to maybe mix up my timeline here, but, I mean, that was after a summer of BLM protests that uh, and, and riots that weren't just, weren't just protests. But I guess one thing that they – like one issue here was that it was on the Capitol and, and while they were voting to uh, confirm the election results. Um, so I, I guess – uh, yeah, <laughs> um, let's go with uh, Eric. What do you What do you think? Well, I mean, it's a serious situation down there, and uh, and of course, you know, people on the streets, whether it was you know Vietnam War protesters or whether it was you know the uh, Martin Luther King protests or whatever, those people had good reason for being there. Uh, I don't know where Art gets the idea that uh, you know they're out on the street because there's nothing else going on, or that's just what they do. As a pastime, most of these uh, most of these uh, protests are uh, are driven in history. They go back to the Civil War. They go back to slavery. You know, I mean, it's like pulling the guy off the horse that's got the whip and uh, and uh, send him packing down the road. You know, I mean, it's a, just an extension of that. And you can't go to sleep on things like that. You know, if you were getting an in-depth analysis of gerrymandering and vote fixing and everything else, the Republicans are the ones. That should be ashamed of themselves. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Other than that, I mean, I, but it, of course it's going to impact Canada. We're going to have big problems here if this thing gets out of control. We've got no place to go because, you know, we burned all our bridges. We don't have a good affiliation with the Britons anymore, the, uh, uh, the Commonwealth countries and the United States that they kick us in the behind and, and the uh, Chinese tell us to take a walk or something. Uh, we got some serious problems. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Peter, do you think? Like, what do you think of the? Like, how's Canada doing? Like, you know, we've and, and in terms of the polarization, because I think that is. I mean, in my mind, that's the bigger problem here is the fact that we increasingly have sides that are yelling at, like, you know, sort of two sides yelling at each other, telling each other, you know, everybody that'll listen that the other side is the worst thing. Um, is that uh, how do we stop that trajectory? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a serious problem. Like uh, there, I, I saw the other day there, Ray Dalio, who's a, an American financier, he says that he said, quote, Entire, it's entirely possible neither side will accept losing the 2024 election. You know, and so we have to look at the, the, the problem. I see the problem there would line with both the Republicans and the Democrats. Both these parties have squatted on the American uh, political system for a long period of time. They're oligarchic parties. You know, they're dominated by billionaires. They're connected <laughs> to the military-industrial complex. Both of them are, the, despite all their um, rhetoric. And... Uh, they're taking the, they are taking the country towards destabilization and even civil war, uh, you know, which I think is, is, is very serious. Now, in terms of uh, uh, Canada, uh, one of the problems that we have is that going back many years, uh, you know, the various federal governments have adopted, the, including the present one, have ad adopted the, you know, the theory of continentalism, like more integration of Canada into the American economy, 
were under the thumb of um, the American military uh, through NORAD and, uh, you know, a whole number of other ways. And so we're in a situation whereby um, if things get destabilized down there, where are we? Where are our supply chains for food? Like we get a lot of food from the, the U.S. And, and so on. And uh, what I think we need in that regard is a look. we have to look at nation building in Canada and looking at a way forward to build uh, Canada and uh, develop it in a more self-reliant way rather than um, relying on Americans uh, or integrating ourselves into their economy. We need to go towards more self-reliance. All right. Well, we'll come back after this break with uh, Herb, hearing from Herb about about January 6th. So uh, we'll be right back. The Ministry of Education has announced a delayed start for students in the province. Students will now be returning to school on Monday. This is allowing schools time to prepare for the new enhanced measures in response to the Omicron variant. Additional information regarding changes to the SD57 Communicable Disease Guidelines for K-12 settings, frequently asked questions related to COVID-19 in schools, and suggested activity for children during the extended winter break can be found on the district's website, sd57.bc.ca. The Prince George Pisces Swim Club is looking for a new logo. If you're an artist, aspiring artist, or graphic designer, submit your design for a chance to win a $500 cash prize. For more details, visit their website at pgpisces.org or email logo.pgpisces at gmail.com. That's the Prince George Pisces Swim Club looking for a new logo. Submit your design for a chance to win $500. Submission deadline is Monday. This March, take action and change the future for the estimated 70,000 British Columbians living with dementia. Attend the Breakfast to Remember, a virtual fundraiser featuring a keynote address with neuroscientist and international best-selling author Dr. Lisa Genova. The Alzheimer's Society of BC 2022 Virtual Breakfast to Remember, Thursday, March 3rd from 7.30 to 9. Ticket information and full details are available through the Fundraise and Participate page under Take Action at alzbc.org. Engage Sport North features a local sports organization each month in their club spotlight. If you know a great organization in the North that should be featured, email kfarrigan at engagesportnorth.com. Sports groups can also promote an upcoming event, competition, or workshop by submitting it to the Engage Sport North events calendar. They'll also highlight the event in their monthly newsletter and across their social media accounts. Engage Sport North. Everything sports for everyone. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, we're back with Herb, just finishing up uh, in our discussion about January 6th and division in politics. Uh, Herb, you've had a bit of time. What do you think, uh, what would you like to add that we need to think about here? Well, I think there's a a serious situation in the States. I think uh, we have to um, really be concerned and uh, be worried. Uh, There's a... Two polls came out recently in the states. Um, one of them, uh, Trump is leading uh, Biden in in relation to the 2024 uh, election. Now, mind you, that's a ways off, but still, that's concerning. The second one, a little more uh, concerning, is that um, uh, 41% of uh, Republicans, uh, sorry, 40% of Republicans, 41% of Independents, saying that violence is an acceptable way to achieve political ends. <laughs> um, so that's um, that's not a good sign. Well, I'm and, sorry to uh, laugh. Yeah, no, uh, I shouldn't laugh. You know, and and you know, in in conjunction with um, Trump putting um, his, uh, his appointees or or nominating his appointees for 
positions of power on uh, on state electoral boards and uh, the act of gerrymandering that's been going on. Uh, we're, there's there's a there's a pretty bad scenario that's being set up, and um, yeah, you know, thankfully uh, that hasn't really crossed the border to uh, any great extent. I mean, the uh, the biggest thing in you know Canada is you know the, our motto has generally been uh, peace, order, and good government, and uh, I think um, for the most part uh, we're sticking with that. And I think you know we've we've lived through one civil war in the states, and we might possibly have to live through a second. Hmm. Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, uh, you know, and thinking, you know, as I was chuckling, sorry, about <laughs> about the idea of violence and, and, you know, another civil war, I was, I was thinking about, uh, I think it's Louis XIV that built uh, Versailles in the in, in France, and the statue in the front has him uh, with a six pack. And it's like, yeah, the guy was obese. And just about thinking about uh, future uh, political leaders also being uh, fighters. So that was sort of funny. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's fairly depressing. How about let's, uh, let's end with, uh, with the sun wing flight. I don't know if you guys have been, uh, you know, up to date on this, but, uh, there was a group of Quebecois influencers and, uh, their friends who chartered a private flight to uh, Mexico and en route proceeded to have a party of, um, and now airlines are saying that they should, won't be flying them back. So, and, and apparently now a number of them have COVID. So what are your thoughts on this? Let's start with Art. Yeah, well, it's not surprising. I've seen lots of reports of uh, the um, officials and the ones who are pushing the masks and regulations and that kind of stuff. Uh, you hear a lot of reports of when the cameras are on, they're all masked up and distancing, but as soon as they think nobody's looking, the masks all come off. And I've seen uh, video and photo evidence of this. So yes, well, I mean, it's, it's not unusual. Uh, I think the airline should fly them back. Um, there are also lots of cases where fully vaccinated, double-vaxxed people uh, on cruise ships and uh, and the like are uh, getting infected. In fact, uh, there's a U.S. outpost uh, in Antarctica where everybody is fully vaxxed and two thirds of them have COVID. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, let's let's get rid of the nonsense and just resume our lives. Okay. How about you, Peter? Do you think this is just is it just nonsense? Like, are we is this a tempest in a teapot? I mean, we have pictures of Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, when he was in the UK. He's in a bar, yucking it up with uh, bartenders behind the behind the counter. Like, what do you think? Like, are these kids, should they be punished? Well, of course, you know, like, it was irresponsible of the, of the people to, you know, the young people to do this, right? But, uh, you know, this should not result in some big fine or prison time. You know, I, otherwise, like, of every party that got a little bit out of control in Canada you know, where people were prosecuted, uh, then you'd have a large number of people in jail, right? And uh, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole here over the top, right? In terms <laughs> yes. Of this thing. And I just bring up one thing, uh, you know, the hypocrisy of it. You know, it's not mentioned in the, pre- in the press that I've seen, but Trudeau, if you go back to Christmas 2016, well, guess who went off uh, to visit the millionaire philanthropist Aga Khan? And uh, he was fine. Trudeau was found guilty of conflict of interest about that Christmas trip, you know, because uh, Aga Khan had lobbied successfully for $50 million from the federal government, right? So I think there's some hypocrisy here, lecturing people and so on, right? I think we, we, they should, the politicians should tone it down and the, uh, 
airlines had thrown it down. All right. Okay, we've got uh, just quick 30 seconds for you, Herb. Uh, What do you think? Uh, well, some of those people are already back. Uh, Sunwing actually uh, offered to fly them back without a meal, and they refused. So obviously, they had uh, other op- you know, opportunities. Look, you know, airlines, uh, people on a party, uh, you know, of course they're going to act out. But um, you know, the airlines have to protect their employees, and um, uh, if everyone did it, the employees would have be having a hard time. They had lots of exposure to to COVID, and no one needs that. Okay, how about uh, Eric? Let's finish it off with you. Well, they only had four or five hours to get from where they were going or coming from to where they were going. And it would have been nice if they could have just maybe acted a little more adult until they got there and didn't have their party. But, you know, I, I, what's the big rush? You know, I mean, you're going, going for a week or something. So, yeah. All I right. I see the big hurry. But anyway, <laughs> thanks. Okay. All right. So we're going to be um, just. Uh, to let you know so next make sure that you tune in next thursday because at from nine to ten i'm going to be speaking to uh uh, first cheryl warrington and tim bennett from the school district and then two of the candidates and on friday from nine to ten i'll be talking to the other three so um yeah and and in the meantime um i just want to encourage everyone to take a look at try to find their some of them have websites some of these school district candidates have websites so there's andrew burton shannon freeman milton mahoney audrey mckinnon and brian trotter so um i know that the local media outlets uh the print outlets or websites have got have interviewed most of them um so I guess a, a, a search engine, engine shirt search should provide you with some results. Um, all right. But that will be next week, Thursday at 9 o'clock. All right. We'll see you then. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500